0: This episode is brought to you by Feel Free from BotanicTonics.com. Feel Free is a small two ounce shot made from kava and other ancient plants. And the feeling that it provides is incredible. It is euphoric. It gives you this sense of focus. It reduces anxiety. And it just puts you in a relaxed state in your body. Think of it as a plant-based magical elixir that can uplift your mood, increase your productivity, and give you the energy to do the things you want to do today. There are so many applications for when you can use Feel Free. A few examples are using Feel Free to get into a flow state before yoga, meditation, or exercise. People are using this as a kind of energy drink to go running for miles at a time. And it's also great for socializing. It just makes it easier to connect to people around you. There isn't this kind of background hum of anxiety anymore. It just really melts away. And that also makes it a great replacement for alcohol. So if you're ready to feel free, go to botanictonics.com And use promo code XIAN40 for 40% off. Again, that's botanictonics.com. Promo code XIAN40, X-I-A-N 40, at botanictonics.com. This episode is also brought to you by Sheath, the underwear of legends. What makes Sheath different is the pouch on the inside, Now this is a game changing invention that completely revolutionizes the male undergarment. These are the most comfortable underwear I have ever worn, by far, they've got amazing designs and styles, super comfortable fabrics. My favorite is the bamboo and also the V, which is a long leg athletic underwear that doesn't ride up and it supports you where it matters most. So go check out Sheath at sheathunderwear.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 20%. Once again, that's sheathunderwear.com, promo code TIMEWHEEL. We are rolling and I'm here with one of my favorite psychedelic filmmakers, Hamilton Morris. How's it going today, man? It's going all right. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. It's an honor to be here, man. I've been a longtime viewer of a lot of your content, you know, starting with the early Vice days and uh, Hamilton Hamilton's Pharmacopeia. And then more recently, I've been really enjoying your podcast. So super stoked to have you, man. Thanks for taking the time. Of course yeah so to get this started man uh, i've been curious um how did this all begin for you you know like particularly how did your interest in psychedelics begin um and it maybe even just psychoactive chemicals at all you know like if you could take me back to the earliest times of you know getting interested in psychedelics and maybe some of those initial experiences and and how it became such a a fascination for you that's pretty much become a lifelong fascination you know
1: yeah yeah I mean it's sort of an evasive answer but whenever people ask about that I think that it's strange that more people aren't interested in it it's always treated (laughs) as if like You know, someone is asking, like, how did you get interested in building replicas of World War II fighter planes or something like that? Like, it's some kind of very obscure interest when, as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the most consequential and interesting domains of human experience. And it's remarkable to me that anyone would ever treat it as something that is niche or wouldn't Mm -hmm. be extremely interesting to everyone. I mean, it's nothing less than um, understanding our own consciousness and the neurochemical foundation of near-death experience, religious experience, potentially creativity, dreaming, all sorts of aspects of our lives that are totally fascinating. And then, of course, drugs in general have such an enormous consequence on our economic system on our legal system on the way that people's rights are given or taken away I mean it's it's really like um, one of the most impactful domains of the world and so and and I think that many people recognize that but they just don't take that second step of then taking it seriously so it's mm-hmm. it's not as if people don't talk about drugs. They talk about them all the time, you know, any watch the nightly news, you know, it's being discussed and has been discussed continuously for as long as there has been a news media. But the strange thing is that it just stops at any kind of, uh, it never reaches a level of sophistication that is beneficial to people. So, you know, I remember just watching the news as a, a child, even in kindergarten, and yeah seeing reports of people overdosing on drugs and thinking that in and of itself was totally fascinating. Um, right. The idea that certain combinations of chemicals could kill people. And like, I remember excitedly telling people on the playground about this, like, did you know <laughs> that there are combinations of chemicals that you can take that will kill you? Like, you know, it seemed almost like the way people talk about a touch of death in karate or something like that. It was the same idea. Like there's these things, things you can, the chemicals you can take and it will cause death. Like amazing. Can you believe Mm it? And, um, and I just, you know, always thought that these stories of the activity of psychedelics long before I ever tried one. Um, you know, I read fear and loathing in Las Vegas as a child, and it seemed to sort of represent, um, a magical effect that, existed in a materialist realm, that you could have these substances, it would totally change reality. And I found the whole idea of it totally fascinating. And of course, just even, you know, DARE and reading these early 90s uh, educational books and things like that and and mm-hmm. thinking, wow, these things are so fascinating. Um, so if anything, I'm just sort of surprised that it is treated as a, a niche topic.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I definitely remember the dare days, and honestly, it worked on me. I, you know, up until around age eighteen, I was thinking, you know, drugs are bad; they're going to ruin your life. Like, there's nothing to gain there. Only like losers would do that, you know. And it wasn't until some of my bandmates started smoking weed, um, you know, my best friends, that I was like, well, it doesn't seem to be affecting them too bad. I mean, they still they're still functioning. They're still creative. They're still talking to me and they're my friends and just like, maybe I should try this. Um, and then that led to quite a large, uh, exploration of psychedelics. I've tried, you know, I want to say almost all of them, at least the primary ones, probably not a lot of the analogs, but you know, I've, I've definitely dipped my toe in with, with almost every primary psychedelic, um, for yourself, which was the first one that you, that you experimented with? Was it also cannabis?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cannabis. When I was in middle school, I didn't use it regularly, but I, I tried it a good number of times. And, um, and, you know, that was interesting. And I wouldn't say that those early experiences with cannabis had the same sort of revelatory quality that I experienced subsequently in high school when I tried salvia Uh, I mean, cannabis is obviously very interesting and, and does provide a sort of introduction into these altered states, but, um, yeah, it was salvia that really allowed me to appreciate the drama and profundity that these experiences can have in terms of, um,
0: how radically your perception can be altered. Right. Yeah, actually, same here, man. Uh, Salvia was my first psychedelic experience. I mean, I would say that those cannabis experiences were certainly mildly psychedelic, for sure, especially when I ate like a brownie. Um, But salvia, yeah, that was, you know, that opened my whole perception up to a whole nother degree. I mean, I remember one time on salvia, I uh, had left my body for two years and I circled the earth as a disincarnated spirit trying to look for my body again like I I didn't know how to get back to normal reality and it took two years literally it felt to me as you know as an observer of consciousness like the, the time of two years before I finally like saw a light and I was like wait that might be my body and I started flying back down and found my body again and then I woke up in my bed and I was like what the fuck like. That was, you know, mildly traumatizing in that I genuinely felt like two years had passed. Like, I, I, I remember calling my girlfriend at the time being like, I'm so sorry I've been gone for so long. And she had no idea what I was talking about. And, you know, um, for yourself, have you ever had an experience like that where it just seemed like such a long time, whether with Salvia or with anything?
1: No, my Salvia experiences seem to be very different from the way that other people describe it, they don't typically have a strong narrative component. And Mm -hmm. they, like when I talk to other people about Salvia, they often describe things sort of similar to what you have described, where there's a narrative, they go somewhere, a thing happens to them in a more dreamlike fashion. My experiences have never had a narrative component. Mm. It's always a feeling that Mm. doesn't, um, really have a story attached to it in any way. It's more like a sense that I'm being stretched or falling through a physical object or that I'm uh, reflecting infinitely and dividing and but it's a very, very abstract, non-narrative sensation more than it is a story or experience of any kind um, in that way. it's mm-hmm. it's um, and, you know, I think that it's very interesting in its own way. I, I would also say that that is the case for uh, nitrous oxide for me as well, where there would not be a narrative component. is more of a, a feeling with associated perceptions, but not um, like a, a visionary experience in terms of a, um, any, any kind of complicated cognitive uh, narrative interpretation it's more like things looked a certain way or felt a certain way for a period and then returned to normal Mm
0: -hmm. yeah for myself when i've tried nitrous what it seems to do is put me in what i would call the pinnacle of the now like there's you know a normal baseline consciousness i don't know i feel like we're relatively attached to the past and the future like you know we're looking forward to something happening later in the day or maybe we're reflecting on something that happened yesterday or you know in in weeks and and months past but in the nitrous experience it feels like the only thing that my perception can possibly you know perceive is that this is the furthest that time has gone and i'm riding this infinite now moment does that resonate with you at all
1: uh not exactly i would say my experiences with nitrous 10 and I don't use it very often. I'm sort of neurotic about it. Um the last time I used it, there are these um these very large canisters that can currently be purchased in New York. And I was with two friends who got these really large, I think they're 45 gram uh no 450 gram cartridges, I believe. And oh, wow. um and I did several inhalations and it's usually a sort of staticky euphoric effect that um, feels sort of anesthetic and without a lot of, a lot of psychologically interesting cognitive processes at play. But then after doing several, I did almost enter um, enter a visual space that seemed digital and, and video game like, but, it's yeah. I've never considered nitrous to be something that um, was especially inspiring or something mm-hmm. that uh, had had uh, major philosophical or intellectual ramifications on my experience. It's incredibly euphoric, and I think that there's you know something to be said for the feeling of it. But um, mm-hmm. it's not something that I've ever looked to for self
0: understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, most people that have experimented with nitrous find that, you know, on its own, certainly interesting, but where it really shines is where it's mixed with other chemicals, particularly like psychedelics, you know, whether it's LSD or mushrooms. Um, I know, you know, ketamine is a big, um, has a big synergy with nitrous. Um, so, you know, I'm not necessarily recommending people go and do that, but, uh, I've certainly experimented with it and, you know, on its own, it's kind of cool. It's like, yeah, I I don't really need to do that again. Not, not very frequently, but, um, in the midst of like a, you know, a psychedelic experience, it can turn like a, a mild LSD trip into pretty much like a DMT trip. In my opinion, would you resonate Hmm. with that?
1: I haven't really combined it with other psychedelics all that much. I've used it well under the influence of 2CB many years ago. And, It did absolutely have a uh, more psychedelic effect when used in conjunction with a psychedelic. So uh, I understand why people find that combination interesting. Um, I, I guess I have always been a little bit reluctant to get too into these sorts of combinations, mostly because I'm usually interested in assessing a single drug on its own and trying to have the best appreciation for what that drug does without any kind of interference or influence from other substances so that I can have a kind of, um, maybe a slightly more, uh, objective appraisal of what that substance does. But, mm-hmm. you know, so what people often contact me and say, Oh, have you ever tried the combination of ketamine and LSD and nitrous oxide and MDMA? And it's amazing. And I don't doubt that it is amazing. It's just (laughs) not usually, uh, the way that I'm interested in consuming drugs in these, uh, kind of combinations. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I feel like the risk factor probably goes up, you know, more and more, the more things you're combining, uh, as far as like potentially damaging, uh, your, your, your brain there. But, uh, you know, maybe, I try to keep it not. safe. I mean, it's,
1: it's, you know, there's, there's some, there's some research to suggest that, you know, assuming that there even is any associated neurotoxicity with an MDA but that it could actually be attenuated when they're used in combination with serotonergic psychedelics or 5-HG2A agonists. Um, you know, oh, this wow. is, has not really been adequately studied, but the idea that mm-hmm. drug combinations are intrinsically dangerous is not, it, it's, I think all else equal, it's usually safer not to do that. But, um, there is definitely the possibility that in some instances it could actually, you know, reduce toxicity of one kind or another. It just really depends.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, That actually, you know, leads into one of the questions that I've written here, um, which was about ketamine. I actually just watched like an hour ago your your, uh, episode um, on ketamine, and when you were laying in the bed right before you took the injection of ketamine, you said that you wrote a paper that said that in some circumstances ketamine is neurotoxic, and in other circumstances it's neuroprotective. I was wondering if you could shed any insight on that, like in what cases is ketamine neurotoxic and in what cases may it be neuroprotective? Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: you know, this is one of the complexities of discussing the action of drugs is often what we know about a drug is derived from observing it under specific experimental circumstances that are not necessarily applicable to human use. Um, So there's a a concept called excitotoxicity that um, is, the, the idea is that glutamate release could cause excess excitation of certain neuronal populations and could actually result in cell death. And by blocking NMDA receptors, you could mitigate excitotoxic brain damage of one kind or another. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the ideas behind the use of NMDA antagonists like memantine for treatment of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. So um, the idea is that by (laughs) chronically dampening the activity at these glutamate receptors, you could potentially limit... Excitotoxic brain damage, um, but it's not even really all that well founded that this is a contributing factor to cell death in Alzheimer's. Um, and it's not as if the administration of memantine prevents the progression of Alzheimer's disease. At best, it might reduce some of the symptoms. So clearly, it's not that simple. Um, you know, experimentally, if you're designing a pharmacology experiment, you can often design conditions where almost any drug could exert a toxic or a protective effect depending on circumstances. So those would be, you know, some circumstances where ketamine could be exerting a protective effect in terms of uh, reducing excitotoxicity. Um, I mean, also, interestingly, while ketamine will block certain types of glutamatergic neuronal transmission it will also facilitate glutamate release in the frontal cortex so it's it's kind of having a, an opposing effect depending on what population of receptors you are looking at um, so it's it's doing both uh, depending on yeah. where you're examining um, in terms of the in causing another example might be in certain types of, um, in certain types of epilepsy, it could also have a neuroprotective effect in terms of damage. Um, you know, you have a few different threads of evidence for how this could be occurring. The earliest would be this, um, neuroscientist, John Olney, who's famous for these, uh, these vacuoles that he discovered when looking at various NMDA antagonists like PCP and MK801 that were called Olney's lesions. And this um, has not been observed in humans or even in primates, but it has been observed in rodents. And this is considered a a potential, maybe contributing toxic effect of some NMDA antagonists. Um, The other aspect of this is that it it does seem as if long-term high-dose use of certain NMDA antagonists like ketamine can cause some kind of neurocognitive deficits. Um, This is the case with a lot of different substances, and the question is really hard to answer because then it's, you know, how much and is it possible that the sorts of people who use these substances at really excessive levels might have some uh, pre-existing deficit of one kind or another. Like there's a, a paper that came out maybe 10 years ago where they did some MRI work on really uh, pretty high-dose ketamine-dependent individuals who've been taking, you know, I think some somewhere in the vicinity of grams every day for years, and they observed some degeneration in certain regions of the brain. But crucially, they did not have MRI imaging that showed what their brains look like before they started using the ketamine so you have to ask yourself what kind of person uses ketamine at extremely high doses every day for years presumably not a normal person Um, might there have been some kind of pre-existing deficit that could have contributed to that pattern of high dose abuse and this is yeah this is just one of the, the questions that complicates interpretation of any sort of discussion of the the toxicity of drugs. You know, it's, this is like, mm-hmm. I understand why people are really interested in this because it matters from a public health perspective. It matters from the perspective of making informed personal choices about what drugs you do or don't use. People want an answer. Is it safe to use MDMA once a year? Mm-hmm. Is it safe to use it once a season? Is it safe to use it once a month and where is the cutoff and what's the dose and what are the potential risks like you people want a a um, a hard and firm answer for what constitutes safe or dangerous use but the reality is that most drug toxicity is going to be dependent on genetics environment various predispositions even In the most well-established instances of drug toxicity, there's often fundamental ambiguity about why certain people exhibit toxic effects and others don't. For example, um, the diet drug fenfluramine is very well-established to cause unregulated growth of heart valves that um, is extremely dangerous. And this has been observed in many countries, over long periods of time, yet everybody that takes fenfluramine does not experience this. So, is there? Is it because some people have a genetic predisposition? Is it simply dose? Is it lifestyle factors? Um, you know, it's 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 kind of the same deal with smoking, right? We've all heard of people that smoked a pack a day for 50 years and live comfortably into their 90s and then there are people who are more sensitive to the damage from smoking and people who are predisposed to certain cancers and people who are resistant to certain cancers so this is like the the kind of infinite complexity of assessing the Mm. way to use these substances in a safe way long answer to your question sorry
0: yeah, no, I enjoy it absolutely. Um, yeah, that makes that, that brings me to the idea and I and I heard this a little bit on the Tim Ferris podcast on ketamine not long ago, but that, you know, a lot of people these days are trading alcohol for ketamine, um whether it be once a week or even a couple nights a week. Um, in your view, which one would be safer? Cuz we know alcohol is is very dangerous, you know, especially when consumed in high quantities. Um, Piketamine has, you know, a very large profile for being relatively safe, even in high quantities, you know, like it's one of the quote unquote safest, you know, um, you know, drugs that there is, you know, as, and as far as people dying from overdoses, I think it's very few. Um, and, you know, I heard an example one time on a podcast where someone said that they had injected a kid, you know, in the ER ambulance with what would be equivalent to five, eight grams of ketamine, and the kid just had a nice nap, woke up, never showed any negative side effects. So, um, I know it definitely depends on how much ketamine and how much alcohol, but let's just say moderate dose, you know, definitely like not grams a day. Let's say someone's using like up to 200 milligrams, maybe 300 milligrams a day versus having three or four drinks, in your view, what, you know, would that be a worthy trade-off? Would that be a healthier trade-off or... Are they, you know, what, what, what would you say about ketamine versus alcohol? I mean, I I would say neither would
1: be, I think in general, there's probably something undesirable about a lifestyle where you are that intoxicated on anything, even if it's physiologically benign. So even, even if we just assume for a moment that neither of these substances have any kind of negative physiological effect. I think that mm-hmm. people people often totally sideline the psychological dimensions of substance use and substance dependence, and they reduce it to these kind of uh, I- concerns about neurotoxicity. You know, people are always writing yeah. me these emails saying, oh, is it neurotoxic for me to take Ritalin? I'm in college, you know, will, will it cause lasting brain damage? And the answer is, Almost certainly not, but there is a valid concern, which is what is going to be the psychological developmental impact of becoming dependent on a stimulant to get your work done. And Mm -hmm. if that continues for the rest of your life, forget neurotoxicity, just throw that out the window what is the psychological impact of that going to be, that you are somebody that mm-hmm. is losing your ability to work unless you take a drug? Same thing with hypnotics for insomnia, right? Forget about you know the potential impact on your sleep architecture, forget about um, whatever concerns about promoting neurodegenerative disease. What does it mean to lose the ability to go to sleep without taking a drug. Um, yeah. So I think those are you know, big concerns that often get sidelined. Same thing with, with uh, benzodiazepines, is people talk about addiction mm-hmm. and that's a very serious concern, but what about the loss of healthy psychological coping mechanisms for the quotidian anxieties of existence? If mm-hmm. you find yourself incapable of socially interacting with other people without taking a drug, like that's a problem regardless of whether or not this drug is having some kind of effect on subunit expression of your GABA-A receptors. So um, <laughs> in, in terms of the, you know, is it better to use ketamine or alcohol as a kind of casual intoxicant? Um, mm-hmm. I would not really recommend either as a casual mm-hmm. intoxicant. I, I think that, you know, for me, the... for me, neither would be an option. I can't drink alcohol because I have a, um, extreme sensitivity to hangover like symptoms, even at very low doses. And for me, they manifest as, um, as usually it's a very psychological effect. It's not like this sort of stereotypical thing that you see in movies or on TV where, you know, people wake up and they vomit and they have photophobia and a headache and all of that. Like, I don't experience that. If anything, I just very reliably will feel depressed the next day after consuming even three drinks of alcohol. And that Mm -hmm. in and of itself is enough to make drinking alcohol basically a non-option for me i mean i'll I'll do it occasionally but it's it's really uh it's certainly not something that i seek out um so but that's me that's not other people other people clearly can drink alcohol without feeling miserably depressed the next day so that i can't apply that to other people in terms of ketamine you know there are also concerns about bladder toxicity that again are um sort of difficult to predict. And like these other examples that I previously gave, I imagine that there's some degree of genetic susceptibility. It could even come down to um, certain lifestyle factors. Like it seems that this is um, mediated in part by direct contact with the bladder and is dose-dependent. And so what... I could imagine, I don't think this has ever been studied, and this is the sort of thing people don't even talk about in the realm of drug toxicity, but I could imagine there being a meaningful toxicological difference between people that consume ketamine in the morning and people that consume ketamine at night, because if you consumed 200 milligrams of ketamine in the morning, then peed several times throughout the day, it would have been substantially eliminated and would not reside in your bladder, potentially causing this ulceration of the urinary bladder. If you consume it before bed at night, the way many people do, you are then uh, likely exposing yourself to eight hours of potential um, irritation and damage of the bladder, and that in and of itself could Alter the toxicity of the substance. That's just one, like completely yeah. hypothetical example um, that that has never been studied to the best of my knowledge. But it seems yeah. like the sort of thing that could alter somebody's response, and it doesn't even really get talked about. Um, right. So, you know, I, I also think that. The, the two have a bit of an apples and oranges character because mm-hmm. um, the effects of alcohol, one reason that it's been so well integrated into our society is that for all of its many harms, it is a somewhat predictable substance and it doesn't tend to promote... um Re- like complicated disruptions of, uh, reality orientation, let's say, whereas ketamine can promote delusions. Um, you know, there's, there's even like, I've, I've been, um, reading this, this, uh, really interesting concept, uh, that I, I was looking at, it, you know, there's this neuroscientist, David Nutt. Are you familiar with him?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So
1: for a while, he's been kind of discussing this idea of an alcohol replacement that would be non-neurotoxic and wouldn't produce a hangover. And I think that his hypothetical substance would be serotonergic in its mechanism. So this would actually be something that is pharmacologically fundamentally different from alcohol. Now, whether or not that would catch on or could fill the societal role of alcohol is a complicated question, but I was looking at some discussion of this and somebody made a point. And they said, well, this is never going to catch on, uh, precisely because it is non-toxic. And the whole reason that people use alcohol is because it's toxic and it provides an excuse for bad behavior. And I thought, well, that can't be true. That that seems incredibly reductive and, and sort of, um, impossible. But then I started looking into it and I was reading these papers, um, on a, a psychological concept called self-handicapping and this mm-hmm. is something that never gets brought up in discussions of addiction in fact i i've read quite a lot of addiction literature and i had somehow mm-hmm. never read any of these papers on self-handicapping have you ever are you familiar with this uh, No, i never heard of it yeah yeah it's um it's really i think has a lot of explanatory value and mm. it's Something that doesn't get brought up, I think partially because there's something uncomfortable about the concept because um, the, the predominant mode of explaining problematic patterns of substance use is uh, a hyper-neuro-reductionist one, where mm-hmm. you, know, you have uh, drugs, and drugs activate neurological reward centers, and certain people basically lose their free will when they encounter you can get into a debate about whether free will exists but whatever sure. whatever might be free will they lose it they when these substances activate their reward centers they are totally incapable of moderating their behavior in any way whatsoever and so in that instance the <clears throat> the only reasonable intervention is, is total abstinence because this is something that is short circuiting one's, um, logical ability to make decisions. Um, and I understand why that's a, a popular mode of conceptualizing drug abuse because it also, the disease model also absolves the user of any sort of responsibility in their own Choices, right? These are people. Mm-hmm. They have genetic susceptibilities. There are these molecules that activate reward pathways, and certain people end up in the crosshairs of these molecules, and they simply cannot uh, resist the the power of these substances. And that's it, you know. And and it's a comfortable right. idea because it's not your fault. It's nobody's fault. It's just these substances activate these pathways, and that's. Your only, your only uh, choice once you end up using them. Um, but what uh, this psychologist uh, Edward Jones was researching um, mm-hmm. was motivations for self-destructive drug use. Um, because, it, like in the, in the conventional appraisal of all of this, the idea is that um, that any self-destructive dimension of drug use is incidental in a Mm. pursuit of euphoric reinforcing desirable effects Uh, no one would deliberately hurt themselves using a drug that would be totally illogical and i'd always Mm. felt that this was one aspect of addiction that never was being adequately conceptualized for me because i've been friends with many people who have struggled with various types of substance use and i you know i used to live with somebody who was a an alcoholic and he would um go on a, a drinking binge and would lose his job or his girlfriend or get into some kind of trouble and mm-hmm. i think okay well you know you, clearly you, if you needed any evidence that drinking is having a negative impact on your life there it is you've got it you lost your job you yeah. lost your girlfriend something really really bad just happened clearly right. you shouldn't drink alcohol clearly this is indisputably a negative influence. And yet mm-hmm. they would, you know, start drinking again. And I think, well, how do, you, how do you explain this? Is this a learning disability? Are they, um, are they not learning a lesson and, and mm-hmm. they can't remember? Or, or what, is the, what is the reasoning at play? Um, okay. And it seems profoundly illogical. But what I really like about the Edward Jones um, self-handicapping literature, which is experimentally this is not, you know, pure speculation. He designed brilliant experiments to test this that have actually been reproduced subsequently. Um, but his idea is that it is in fact not illogical, but is extremely logical. And that the reason that people use certain drugs in a self-destructive way is to protect their self-esteem. And, and the way that, he conceptualizes this as really interesting the sort of the example that he gives is somebody taking an exam and getting drunk before the exam and if you saw somebody do that you'd say what a fool why would you get drunk before the exam but what he identifies is that there's actually a, a deep psychological rationality in this behavior which is that if you get drunk before the exam and then you fail the exam you can then blame the alcohol and it doesn't impact your self-esteem so you didn't fail because you're incompetent or because you lack the abilities to excel academically you failed because you made a stupid decision and and conceivably you know if you just didn't drink you would have probably done pretty well but you know you drank so Mm. so in this way it protects your self-esteem but there's a second tier to it that's also very interesting which is that the consumption Mm. of alcohol before the exam does not necessarily preclude success on the exam so if you then succeed You've doubly succeeded because not only (laughs) did you ace that exam, you did it and you got fucking drunk the night before the exam. So you're doubly smart. So what you've created is a self-esteem protecting win-win situation. If you fail, it's not your fault. If you succeed, you're doubly amazing. And I think that there is a a dimension of this at play in a lot of self-destructive drug use where it serves a role in protecting self-esteem. Um, yeah. And then, you know, so then it, the question is, it, like, ketamine is a replacement for alcohol. Um, you know, it, really the only reason I bring this up is to show that there are, Uh, very complicated psychological social factors at play that exist and extend well beyond uh, the pure pharmacology of these substances. And so when you talk about replacing one thing with another, there's so many other dimensions of it that have to be considered. Um, But as a a short answer to your question, I don't, yeah, I don't think using either of them regularly is probably ideal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Damn. No, that's freaking amazing. I'm definitely have to read into that. Um, yeah, that was a, a great answer and, uh, and I have just one more question um, on ketamine while we're on the topic of it and then I want to move into some filmmaking and consciousness related topics but um, that was, uh, do you have any insight on where most of the ketamine in the US is is coming from whether it's, you know, independent labs like locally? Or are they getting it from mass manufacturers and then, you know, like selling it, that type of thing? Um, I know it's definitely circumstantial, but just on a broad sense, you know, did, you know, in all of your research into this, have you discovered where, you know, the majority of ketamine that's being sold at like the street level, you know, originates from in the United States?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've, I've looked into it quite a bit. I mean, I, I think the basic answer is, you know, India and China are the, the major... It's a substance that pretty much has to be industrially manufactured in order mm-hmm. to um, meet the demands of the market because ketamine is not a particularly potent drug by weight. So, yeah. And it's a somewhat difficult drug to synthesize. And when you combine a substance that is difficult to synthesize and requires a high dose this makes it a very poor candidate for clandestine manufacturer in the manner of something like LSD uh, because people yeah. are going to need grams and grams and grams of this. It's a five-step synthesis. Um, it's just not something that people can cook up in their bedrooms and, and hope to satisfy the market demand. Um, mm-hmm. On my Patreon podcast, I recently kind of went through all the different... Steps associated with what makes a substance better or worse suited to clandestine manufacture. And ketamine is one of these things that just doesn't, um, especially given it, it, high doses are used, it's used somewhat frequently by many users. Um, it's just not something that uh, could practically be produced on the typically, probably 100 kilogram or thousand kilogram scale that is required to meet market demands in any kind of typical domestic clandestine lab. I mean, most clandestine synthesis doesn't really occur in the United States anymore and hasn't mm. since uh, probably the 90s or early 2000s. It's still, it still will always exist to some extent, but the penalties have become so harsh and the <laughs> crackdown on many aspects of precursor acquisition have become complicated at a time when, crucially, this can simply be done more easily in other countries, um, that it, it makes sense to do it elsewhere. That's the mm-hmm. the basic idea. Um, yeah. You know, these things, these attempts to regulate use don't ever work, but they can shift the market in various directions. So it obviously... Yeah this didn't do anything to prevent people from using drugs. People are using more drugs than ever before, but it mm-hmm. kind of destroyed a, a culture of domestic clandestine synthesis that once was rich
0: in the United States. Right. Right. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I had no idea. I didn't know if, <sighs> if, if you're getting it in a city like Austin, is it, is someone in Austin making it or is it, yeah. Coming Almost certainly I mean, I can see
1: it's possible, but I would bet against it.
0: Right. That makes sense. I love that. Um, As far as, you know, I I know you've also explored uh, quite a few psychoactive chemicals. Does one stand out or one experience stand out as the most powerful, as in the most transformative, like you had the, the biggest epiphany or the biggest takeaway? Um, and if so, what, what chemical would that be?
1: Uh, you know, I, I tend not to try to think about these things in terms of superlatives. Um, it's, it's a tendency that I see a lot in the drug realm of best, craziest, most potent, and it's just not, really, it's like if people said, was there one meal that stood out to you or one movie or one song, you know, you could come up with some answer, but it's just not really, um, it doesn't seem to me like a honest way to appraise these experiences. I think that they've all offered different things that have been valuable at different times, often for different reasons, often due to certain circumstances where, you know, the influence of consuming salvia when I was in high school was extremely profound, but part of it also had to do with the timing of those experiences and them being my first experiences with psychedelics. Was that some intrinsic property of kappa opioid receptor agonists? Maybe, or maybe it was the timing and the fact that at that point in my life, this was a totally new type of experience and it could have been ketamine, it could have been uh, xenon, it could have been any number of things, but it it happened to have been salvia. And, and I also think that, you know, dose plays a big role in a lot of these things. So I've had incredibly profound experiences with Pharmawaska, but I've also taken Pharmawaska at very high doses. Um, My Pharmawaska experiences have been more profoundly life-changing than my masculine experiences, but I haven't taken as high doses of masculine. So it's, it's like, I I would hesitate to say that it's because DMT has some kind of uh, intrinsically superior therapeutic effect relative to masculine or anything like that. I just, um, I think that it's really just dependent on so many different factors. And I also think that there's, you know, maybe something to be said for subtle experiences as well. Um, you know, if I tell a story about my sense of time and identity disintegrating, that's very dramatic and interesting, but sometimes that's not really what people need. Um, in fact, I think that's something that very few people need is to have their sense of time and identity completely deconstructed. I mean, maybe it is who knows, but, um, often what people probably would benefit from more would be more grounded reflection on their experience and how they can be subtly better people, you know, like Mm -hmm. trying to be kind and empathic and understanding and generous and patient and hardworking and, you know, that sort of thing. Like these are the things that actually seem to help people and Make the world a better place. So if you you know you say oh I realize that r- reality isn't real and it's a simulation and time doesn't <laughs> exist and you know there, and and we and immortality is real and reincarnation is real that's fantastic that's and I'm Jesus right like it's that's fantastic it's a great <laughs> thing but like where does that stand up relative to uh, thinking that you have a friend that's struggling and maybe you should take some time to help them out with whatever right. whatever mundane problem that they're having that could be small maybe their apartment's a mess and you could come over and help them do their dishes or something like that like that that's probably a, a far more profound contribution to the world than yeah. um, realizing that you're
0: jesus <laughs> absolutely great answer i love that and yeah when you said uh something you said in there reminded me of something that you had said at another point in one of your productions Which was, um, you know, there's a tendency to kind of go out on a retreat, you know, for example, do ayahuasca in the jungle um, and then come back home. But what you said was something along the lines of, you know, it might be and not necessarily do this with ayahuasca, but it might be more useful to try psychedelics in an environment you're used to, to see, you know, essentially your own house, your own normal environment in a new way then you know kind of go far away and then come home and um yeah it, it essentially by by being so far away from home in your natural environment you don't really get as much transformational perspective on your at-home environment is that something that you still kind of stick by
1: yeah and i think that that's basically connected to the previous question um mm-hmm. in that especially when I was first becoming really interested in psychedelics, this was around the time that uh, Daniel Pinchbeck was at the height of his popularity, Breaking Open the Head had been published in the preceding years, and everybody had a a very xenocentric uh, concept of the value of psychedelics. And there there was a sort of, in the same way that now everything is medicalized, uh, everything was seen through a sort of shamanic, xenocentric framework. So if you were trying to communicate that you had a serious interest in psychedelics to another person, you would tell them that you had spent time with the Shipibo, that you'd done a serious Shipibo training. You'd gone with this indigenous group and that indigenous group and you'd done the serious purge and you'd had the most painful ayahuasca experience and you'd fasted and you'd done all the kind of uh, masochistic uh, demonstrations of the seriousness of your dedication to... All the uh, ayahuasca experience. And what I found was that this, if anything, seemed to promote these very ungrounded interpretations of the psychedelic experience that were much less interesting to me. I mean, of course, there's also the irony that, um, you know, people are discussing this experience as something that will promote some kind of ecological consciousness and everybody is like getting on like jets to the Amazon to use this stuff that is a tea that they could be preparing in their own apartments if they were so inclined. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and, you know, yeah, the, the question is, you know, what about a a more subtle, uh, more grounded response to these things that might come in terms of modification of your environment and your life, whether it's cleaning your apartment or, um, having more plants or trying to contribute to your community in some way to make it a more beautiful, vibrant place to exist. Um, I think that that right. all really matters because if you're going to be seeing the world in a different way, why not see your own world as opposed to this kind of uh, this lifestyle that is totally disconnected from your true existence.
0: Right. Yeah, Absolutely. And yeah, it's funny you say that there because when I do microdose LSD, I certainly look around the house and see things just out of place and, oh, I should dust this and dust that and pick up this and like, wow, I really want to beautify my home, you know, rather than escape to this place and then come back. And, you know, by the time you're you're home, you've kind of, you know, come down a little bit and you've lost that that perspective or perception, that widened perspective that, you know, these, these psychedelics offer. Um, so, I definitely resonate with that. Um, I, I wanted to go into this question about how, you know, I've listened to your podcast a bunch, seen pretty much every episode of your show. You tend to kind of not go into spirituality. Um, you have more of a, like a scientific materialist perspective on reality and life. Um, I'm curious why that is. Um, you know, I have my speculation that it's a little bit to be, um, taken seriously in the scientific community. Um, but also I feel like you, you had, you've had to have had experiences similar to like spiritual experiences, whether they're out of body experiences or, um, uh, synchronicities or precognitions, you know, because those come hand in hand with these psychedelics. Um, so, I just wonder if you would speak to, you know, how essentially you've remained agnostic to spirituality despite having explored these chemicals and molecules that, you know, often tend to give people a more spiritual perception on their life and on reality and what they're doing here.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's certainly not to be taken seriously scientifically. Uh, that, I can tell you with, with certainty, is not, I'm not, like, hiding a, a deep, um, supernatural orientation. I am, I've never even been sure that I understand what the word spiritual means. I don't, Mm -hmm. um, I don't see it as an axis of experience that has meaningful explanatory value for me. And Mm -hmm. that's just my own, I'm not trying, you know, people have a million ways to think about these experiences and I don't think any of them are intrinsically right or wrong as long as they, you know, aren't harming other people. Um, but for me, you know, if I've had any orientation, um, although it maybe is in the realm of materialism, if anything, it's just a, a, a attempt to appreciate the unknown and to embrace mm-hmm. the mystery of existence and to not tile over mystery with any kind of false explanation, whether it is scientific or spiritual. Um, and that's, that's my orientation, is to try to be at peace with uncertainty and the unknown and mm-hmm. to accept what is not known, and I think that people that will say, "Oh, you know, this is just a disruption of the default mode network, and uh, it's you know, this is just the the action of you know a 5 ht 2 a agonist that, uh, you know, that activates this second messenger system." This is, explains it entirely. Or people that mm-hmm. say, "Oh, this is you know some kind of ancestral uh, communication with the jaguar spirit or whatever." Like both are unsatisfying to me as ways of conceptualizing the experience. And for me, um, what matters most is just my, how I feel during the experience Mm -hmm. and I don't need to explain it, um, beyond trying to document it as accurately as possible. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I could feel all kinds of ways I could feel that I am somebody else. I could not know where I am. I could think it is a thousand years ago. And Mm -hmm. those are all valid and interesting things. um, But I don't feel the need to say that they are real or to come up with some kind of convoluted neurochemical explanation that explains it all away. Um, You know, and I think this even applies to everything really, Um, you know, it's it's like, I don't see any aspects of experience as, um, as you know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, like love is just this or that. It's just oxytocin or it's just this, that. Or people say, oh, no, there's no way that neuroscience can explain love. And, and, um, you know, I just don't see it as a, uns- I, I don't feel the need to, hyper explain or say that explanation is impossible. I just want to make peace with um, experience and be at peace with the uncertainty of existence as much as possible.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, from myself, uh, how my spiritual perspective began um, was, you know, with psilocybin mushrooms in the woods, I very much got this sense of animism you know which means you know, nature is conscious i could very much feel that like the rocks beneath my feet and the trees and the blades of grass all had some seed of consciousness within them they weren't just kind of inanimate objects there were spirits attached and you know so you know like i'm a big fan of like miyazaki um you know sp- spirited away and um Princess Mononoke, these types of things where he very much, you know, believes in these ideas as well. Um, There's this whole kind of ancient religion called Shinto. And I don't know, I just connect, I plug directly into that. I plug directly into animism and I could just feel the consciousness within the pebble or the consciousness within the crystal around my neck. And that to me made me feel as if Earth is and even the sun were not just like these like chemicals or like in- inanimate things like, you know, we could think of the sun as just like a chemical reaction out, out in space happening for no real reason. But I was getting this sense that like the sun and the moon are like spiritual beings. They have spirits attached to them. The woods have spirits attached to them. The rivers have spirits attached to them. Um, maybe I'm just kind of like copy pasting consciousness that's what's happening within my head onto them but it felt 110% real to the point that I changed my worldview from thinking like you know trees are you know more or less just byproducts of you know whatever to that this whole experience here on earth is of a spiritual nature Um, what does that bring up for you as far as you know like how, how would you respond to that
1: I mean, I think that, you know, that sounds good for you. It sounds like it's a, a beneficial and maybe that promotes some kind of a peaceful sense of communion with your environment. And um, it's just not, you know, if anything, I'm in the complete opposite direction where not only do I not think that rocks or plants are conscious, I'm not sure that I think humans are conscious. I'm not mm. sure that I... Uh, I'm not sure that I really believe in life or consciousness as real things. Um, you know, I, I see. I, I believe that there is a sense of something. There, there is a sense of something. The, a feeling of being that is called consciousness. But mm-hmm. there's a feeling of a lot of things, and I don't know that that means that it is real. And I also don't know that just because we experience it, that means that it's important. I, I think that we, there's a kind of, I don't know, a, an anthropocentric sense of existence that um, doesn't really acknowledge chemistry as the kind of overarching force of the universe. And chemistry... Mm-hmm has many ramifications, one of which is a complex system that has a sense of what it is like to, has a sense of something that it calls consciousness, but that's just one of a million, uh, infinite number of things that can emerge out of complicated chemical reactions. And mm-hmm. so I don't see that as the be all end all of anything any more than, uh, any better or worse than, um, an SN2 reaction, or beta decay, or stellar nucleosynthesis, or whatever. I mean, these are all just different ways that matter interact with one another to produce different outcomes. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's like, I, I, I don't see consciousness as inherently good or ubiquitous, or even I'm not sure that it even exists. Um, And and this is one of the difficulties when you try to define certain things like life, which becomes, you know, everyone would say, oh, isn't it obvious what is alive and isn't alive? But when you start looking at scientific literature that is trying to develop a, a sort of hypothetical framework for how life emerged on earth for abiogenesis, for this transition from chemistry to biology, um, you start to realize how weird and arbitrary these labels that we place on things are. When exactly is it Mm -hmm. that a a chemical reaction goes from being dead to alive? And Mm -hmm. if you're having difficulty figuring out where that is, maybe it's because this distinction never really existed in the first place.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... That's interesting. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the artwork of Alex Gray. Yeah. So, you know, he's got such a massive fan base because so many people have had experiences that they can say like, yeah, that's the place I went. You know, if we were to think of what psychedelics or even particularly DMT does, um, in a non-spiritual point of view, it's a quote-unquote hallucination, which kind of means... You know, the things bumping around in your head are creating random experiences that then you're having this quote-unquote hallucination that means it's not real. It's just kind of like a dream unique to you. How is it then that so many people go to similar places, if not the same place, and meet even similar beings, if not the same beings, you know, and they can, they would put their life on it that like, yes, I met the thing that Alex Gray met. You know, that to me means, you know, what the chemical does is it separates our soul or our awareness from our body and puts us into some higher realm of experience. And, you know, it's almost as if so many people are reaching these same, very similar, if not exact same, higher realms. And then, you know, when we see the visionary art piece, we're like, oh my God, he knows what I know. Um... How would you explain that?
1: Uh because I don't think it's purely random would be the the first aspect of this. I think that um that there is something very much non-random about it and you know when Google's deep dream came out everyone myself included was very struck by the fact that these artificial neural networks that have been designed for image recognition were producing visual effects that were very strongly reminiscent of the effects produced by psychedelics. And how could that be Mm -hmm. the case? And the basic explanation is that, um, overdriving certain pattern recognition circuits can produce this sort of, um, Hallucinatory effect that even in a computer is somewhat reminiscent of the experience that a, a human has, and so I think that these sorts of um, increased propensity to uh, recognize patterns that we have evolved over millions of years to be very very good at recognizing, like faces, um, is uh, is something that can be. Accentuated by certain substances. And so it's not surprising to me in the slightest that there is um, a commonality in the types of experiences that people have, given that we are the same species and are all related to one another ancestrally. And we have substantially similar brains and are using a substance that is activating the same sets of receptors in a -hmm. central nervous system that is very similar among everyone in the species. So it's not, uh, it's not all that surprising to me that, uh, that there would be similarities in the experiences that people have when taking similar drugs. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and whether that should be, uh, suggestive of like a, another realm or an immaterial realm. I mean, I don't, again, I don't really see our current experience as entirely real. It's already a sort of evolved uh, perceptual model of a world that is without question very different from the world that we see and experience. So mm-hmm. um, the, so that reality is already um, something of, I mean, maybe technically speaking, it's not a hallucination, but it's a sort of uh, evolved uh perceptual interpretation of an environment that is very different from what we are perceiving in the sense that color doesn't exist and so on and so forth
0: right right yeah for sure you know i get the sense that what we see on psychedelics certain you know let's say lsd magic mushrooms ayahuasca the those type of psychedelics is closer to what is really happening Than our normal baseline consciousness. I would say our normal baseline consciousness is more of a hallucination than what we see on psychedelics. I feel like, yeah, you you mentioned the default mode network earlier, I I feel like when that drops our kind of like, you know, um, pattern recognition software that wants to like put everything neatly in these little boxes for us to feel safe, like we know what's going on here, um, goes away, and now we can see how infinitely vast and myster- mysterious reality really is. And, you know, I, I kind of subscribe to, like, the idea of, like, quantum, quantum mechanics, these type of things, and, and that, to me, is what I tend to see on these, you know, psychedelic experiences is, like, a, a quantum nature, Um, and, and also, I've definitely had experiences of traveling to Quote unquote, higher realms that other people have, you know, been to in that they've then gone to create paintings about or speak about on podcasts. And you know, another example is so many people, so many people see and visit and come into contact with Mother Ayahuasca when they do Ayahuasca. I feel like even if, you know, and I haven't seen a test done like this, but I feel like even if a person had zero suggestion, that they're going to come into contact with a mother ayahuasca, that they would still come in contact with it, you know, because we can kind of rationalize that maybe what's happening with psychedelic experiences is the power of suggestion is so uh, impactful to our consciousness that if someone's, you know, telling you before you take the ayahuasca that you're going to meet it, that suggests to you now that you're going to meet it and therefore you're going to meet it. But at the same time, I feel like so many people that were totally not spiritual totally not religious in any sense, totally materialist take these compounds and now they don't know that they know that that's the only thing that exists now. You know, I've heard this funny example of, let's give Richard Dawkins, you know, that one of the the world's most profound atheists um, or well-spoken atheists, uh, outspoken atheists, I should say, um, some DMT or some ayahuasca or, or something that's going to, you know, changes his caution is quite radically and ask him, is he still an atheist? You know what I mean? Um, I would assume, yes. What do you think about that? It,
1: of, I would assume yes, because the, like the existence of altered states of consciousness can exist within a, a materialist atheist framework very easily, including, um, including states that are transcendent or spiritual or mystical in one way or another. Like, I think there's this idea that if you're an atheist or a materialist, you don't have remarkable experiences or you don't have any kind of communion with the mystery or the profound or the inexplicable, like that you have some kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, you, you think that you understand everything. This is like the most severe misinterpretation of the way I think many materialists think about the world. It's not that you understand everything. It's that you're simply not using supernatural forces to explain experience. You conceptualize experience as occurring in a universe that is made of matter and material Mm -hmm. interactions. And within that, I think there is ample room for all sorts of various alterations of perception. Uh, And as I said previously, I think that perception and reality as it currently exists is already something of a a hallucination. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, most people are very comfortable with the existence of dreams. That doesn't seem to be uh, something that is at all Disputable. I'm sure Richard Dawkins has had dreams, and I don't think that yeah. having a dream would make him say, Oh, never mind, the, the, the materialist world cannot possibly explain this. Of course, it can via mm. changes in electrical and neurochemical activity in the brain. And there are, and you could just stop there and say, Yeah, it's interesting. It's unusual, it's different from typical perception. You could then go and design experiments and try to explain why this might be the case. Maybe it has to do with memory consolidation processes. Maybe we evolved dreaming as a sort of uh, virtual reality practice space for Mm -hmm. the threats of our waking environment. This is something that some neuroscientists have proposed, that you know, the idea if, if dreams have some kind of a predictive value, maybe the reason for that is because they are being produced from our fears in our environment. And so people that, you know, maybe they notice some kind of footprints around their home, and then that deposits a conscious or a subconscious concern that there could be some kind of predator in their environment. And then they have a nightmare about that predator. But in doing so, they are then increasing their conscious awareness of the possibility of encountering that predator. And they have a sort of practice for when they eventually do encounter the predator or whatever. And so they would be more evolutionarily fit. This is like the, you know, Mm -hmm. one, uh, one proposed explanation for why people might dream. There's a neuroscientist named Auntie Ray von Sue, I believe is his name, who's uh, interested in this idea. But, um, you know, so it's, it's not like, I, I think, I'm not going to speak for Richard Dawkins, but I think that the idea is like, oh, if we, you know, really gave uh, a materialist a really amazing experience, then they would have to abandon their materialism. But materialism doesn't preclude amazing experiences or altered states of consciousness or Inexplicable, profound um, communions with the unknown. It's just yeah. like there is nothing that, you know, if a ghost walked into the room right now, I wouldn't say, oh my God, like that's it, never mind. Like it, <laughs> it, it doesn't, it, I would think, okay, well, what is accounting for that? Is it because I'm hallucinating? Is it because mm-hmm. um, I would just try to think of it a non-supernatural explanation for it, um, because Mm -hmm. basically because I don't think that the supernatural has explanatory value. And if I'm going to go anywhere in that direction, I'd rather just say, I don't know. It's unknown, as opposed to uh, saying, oh, here's the explanation, spirits. Because that, in some sense, um, does not strike me as an elevation of my interpretation of a phenomenon. It's almost a diminishment. It's like... Uh, just waving your hand and saying, yeah, yeah, spirits, like end of story, that's it. So um, I think that this is kind of, it's not a question of the magnitude of the profundity. Like this is, you know, people always say like, oh, did you have some experience that totally changed your interpretation of the world? And they say it like, if, if you just went a little deeper, then you would finally admit that, that uh, you know, reality isn't mediated by the brain or something like that. But it's like, I've, I've been, extremely deep. (laughs) Like I've been as deep as anyone should want to go, I think. And (laughs) it's just not really, um, it's just not, no experience, even if it's a complete loss of identity or a complete loss of sense of time or uh, a sense of dying and coming back to life has made me feel that a pharmacological neurological explanation is incompatible um Mm -hmm. because the conscious experience is already infinitely complicated and unknown so there's it's not as if everything is known to begin with so that this is like somehow represents a a, some kind of foundational shaking of something that i Mm -hmm. already completely understood i don't understand any of it to begin with so like Mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't really uh pose any kind of issue with the compatibility of my
0: conceptual framework for interpreting reality. Mm-hmm. So I was not able to successfully convert you to being spiritual. Damn it. No, but I don't, it's, <laughs> but that doesn't
1: mean that I like, I, I don't, I think other people can be spiritual and I don't even think my experience is different from people. Really. I think I'm just using different words to explain it probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe I have some kind of, you know, some kind of epistemological hesitation with these sorts of labels because I don't, Mm -hmm. because I I see them as a a sort of uh, oversimplification of something that I prefer to refer to as a mystery. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and I definitely love the mystery. Don't get me wrong, you know. I I, I still am very infatuated with the mystery. But I'll just speak to myself and and the listeners as to how becoming quote-unquote spiritual has helped me, which was previous to that I was quite depressed, if I'm being honest. I was a little bit like, why am I here? I I didn't really sign up for this. Um, Life is suffering. Um, I'm pretty miserable, to be quite honest. And uh, I kind of wish I wasn't here, you know? After some of these experiences, I started to get this sense of purpose that, you know, I'm here for a reason. I have a soul that has come into this realm to do some type of soul evolution. Um, I started to believe in the concept of karma. I've seen karma directly in my life. I'm not saying that it's going to be real for everyone, but, you know, I feel like, you know, many times when I did something that was, you know, not of the highest integrity, pretty damn soon after some bad shit happened to me. And then as I started to try and stay as, and, and as much integrity as I, as I possibly can, a lot more good shit's coming my way. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. It felt like I got this relief um, off of my chest the, the, and depression very much disappeared. My, a lot of my anxiety disappeared, not that I don't suffer with it sometimes, but uh, for me, it's created a much more beautiful, happy, vibrant experience of being on Earth um, by believing, choosing to believe that I'm a spiritual being. You know what I mean?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's that's you know whatever whatever it takes to to live a good life and to be this is you know one of the <clears throat> the kind of main arguments for religion is that in many cultures it has provided a moral framework that is considered somewhat helpful. I mean, I, again, I'm kind of anti-religion, so uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that it's also caused an enormous amount of harm and has been historically used to control people in a way yeah. that um, is not really beneficial. But, mm-hmm. um, but I get it, you know, we, our current society is weird. We don't really have traditions. We don't have rites of passage our purpose is unclear. Our purpose is probably non-existent. Our purpose is potentially uh, very damaging given the way that the world currently exists. It's hard to be alive. There's a lot of uh, guilt associated with existing in post-industrial society and feeling as if the world is disintegrating in front of you and everything that you do is somehow contributing to that disintegration. There's a lot of justifiable cause for concern and suffering. And, mm. um, and I guess whatever, there's an argument to be made for experiencing the suffering as well. I don't think that, uh, refusal to suffer is if people even have an option and usually they don't have an option, but, um, uh, mm. there's something to be said for suffering as well and recognizing that as part of the fabric of existence. But, um, yeah, I mean, whatever, whatever it takes, I guess, to, uh, yeah. to, to live a good life and to be good to other people. And if that involves, you know, whatever, whatever, yeah. it could involve really anything, you know, it could right. be it involve just being like really into sci-fi or something. It could be whatever, <laughs> or art or whatever music. Sure. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't think anybody has an, an explanation for for any of this, but if the idea is that karma is real, well, I'm sure it is real in the sense that uh, in the sense that your treatment of other people will have ramifications on yeah. the quality of your existence in many mm-hmm. instances I suppose there there are people that just get away with infinitely fucking over everyone around them and and uh but
0: you know um yeah, yeah, yeah. so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, and I want to move on to another topic while we still have time about filmmaking here. But the last thing is, you know, I get this sense uh, in DMT states of life review, meaning this is like a simulation of what the death experience is going to be like. And I'm able to look back on my life. I almost have access to all my memory for some reason under the effect of certain psychedelics. And I can kind of gauge how good of a person I've been. Uh, either since the last time I used a, a chemical like DMT or or if it was my first time using DMT up to that point. So I was able to see like my whole last 20 years and have like this review of who I was, how I was, what I prioritized, what I neglected. Um, and I could see so much room for improvement in this quote unquote simulated life review. And then it came to me that, you know, They say DMT releases in your brain when you're dying, so you're pretty much going to have that life review, and that is where we blast off into infinity of either heaven or hell of how we feel about how we lived our lives, you know? So, if I lived my life pretty good, and I'm pretty content with how I was, I'm going to have this heaven experience Even if it's just DMT entering my brain, I'd rather have that, right? If I was an asshole and I took advantage of everything and I manipulated a ton and I stole and I lied and I cheated, I'm going to have this life review of, wow, I was a piece of fucking shit. I feel it all now and now I'm in hell, you know? So, in my mind, it's not that heaven is this plane or hell is this plane, it's the death experience that we're going to have through the release of dmt in our brain when we die if not dmt a, a chemical that does a very similar thing and that's going to create you know you're either heaven or hell experience and i you know they, i think that's why that's echoed through culture for you know thousands of years that these that there's like you know the egyptians have this was your was your uh, heart as light as a feather you know or christians have this you know you're going to go to heaven with everyone you love or you're going to go to hell where you suffer for eternity You know, I don't necessarily prescribe to religion either, but I I, I feel as if there is like a spiritual thing going on and we're going to have a life review and we're going to see where we were wrong with clarity and we're going to see where we were right with clarity. You know what I mean? So, that's why it's beneficial to me to believe all this stuff because I want to live a good life and I want to feel like a good person when I die. But why does that matter
1: to you at the end? Like, why, why would a one minute or one second review be more important to you than the years of experience as being a good or a bad person?
0: Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's not like I won't reap the benefit up to the point of death of being a good person. You know, certainly people will like me more, involve me more in things and rather than if I was an asshole at the time. So, I'm not saying that's the only reason. But I'm just saying that, um, yeah, I feel like in so many different wisdom traditions from, you know, Buddhism or uh, Christianity, the Egyptian uh, way that they look at it, they, yeah, they have this uh, idea that when you die, you're going to be judged. Um, and I've had that experience, but I don't think that it's like God that judges you. I think it's you that judges you. and. It's like your higher self and your higher self has this sense of clarity as to what's right and what's wrong. It has a moral compass and it can see that even at the times when maybe you thought you were doing the right thing, maybe that was misguided. Maybe that was, you know, a manipulative event. But, you know, you can also see with clarity like, wow, those times I was just humbly serving and not expecting anything in return. That was, that was the right move. That was the right action. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know that we're going to necessarily agree, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying why it makes sense to me, uh, that psychedelics have offered me a, a higher perspective on my life and, and why to do the right thing as much as possible.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a, a good attitude whether or not one uses psychedelics, it's, you know, or is spiritual. You should just try yeah. to uh, be good if at all possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen, brother. So, okay. So while we have a few more minutes here, I wanted to talk about filmmaking, um, because I find your productions very well done, very professional, very inspiring to the point that I'm like, damn, I want to make some shit like this. So I'm curious, you know, in a little bit of a short story, cause we don't have a ton of time left, but like, uh, how did this interest in filmmaking begin? You know, wh- what was maybe your first production when did you know filmmaking was, was something that, you know, you were really called to do?
1: Hmm it was just very gradual, I would say. You know, I started making these things when I was 21. I was working with a, a producer named Santiago Stelli, who was really, um, even to this day, responsible for building the foundation of a lot of the video reporting that was being done at that time, what was called VBS. And, um, and you know, I was, we were working with one camera one lens and just kind of filming things that we thought were interesting and there was very very little attention paid to the aesthetic dimensions or the cinematic dimensions of what we were creating it was sort of just journalistic in the sense of here's a story go to the story film the story edit it together into something that's funny and truthful and Mm -hmm make it available for free on the internet. And then I started working with somebody named Danilo Para, and he's a really brilliant filmmaker and has a, a very funny sensibility. And we worked together and made a lot of these things that were really sort of more comedically oriented or that we were kind of having fun. But I was also really interested in, in, this sort of science journalism aspect of it as well. And um, Mm -hmm. how this sort of video documentary work could communicate scientific ideas that were often presented in boring or reductive ways in most of the coverage that I encountered. I felt and continue to feel that the bar is incredibly low for most of these things. Um, You know, really in terms of chemistry, filmmaking, there's not much out there. Um, my show, I think, right. is the only show that really shows the total synthesis of many substances. You don't really encounter that in any domain. Like yeah. I, I don't know that anyone has filmed every mm-hmm. step you know required to synthesize something like Prozac or or even like a you know methylene blue or whatever. you know it's just it's not um, it's not something that is typically, a subject of filmic storytelling. And I don't know why I've always found chemistry to be very visually engaging and narratively engaging and funny and weird. So as we gradually got additional resources, more people to work with as producers like Mimi Packer and Justin Clark, and could collaborate with more, uh, scientists and, and develop increasingly intricate stories. We just kept getting better and more involved. And I started really thinking about, you know, chemistry that would be beautiful to film, how best to film it. started really getting into time lapses and, specific types of wide angle macro lenses that would allow, uh, visualization of crystal growth and, you know, just the technical aspects of how to visually illustrate a lot of these things that as far as I can tell, no one had ever really bothered to film or document previously. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, I was curious, you know, because my first exposure to you came from Vice. And I was always wondering, you know, is Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, the first few episodes, you know, for example, where you went to try that poison frog in the village, was that created, you know, independently and then either sold or distributed to Vice? Or did Vice kind of put up you know, the production, you know, put, put up the funds for the production, uh, for that. And so you had a connect advice previous to making the first episodes of Hamilton's Pharmacopeia.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I was already writing for the magazine. I, I knew people advice. And then this was really at the beginning of their video domain. So then this producer Santiago Steli, um, was you know the way that they would it was all very 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 low budget so the way that they would think about it was we're going to brazil and we're going to film these five things you want to come to brazil and uh if so what can you film in two days while we're there you know that was kind of the idea um so it was people talk about vice as if it is a person or it is a uh, an entity that has some kind of agency or awareness uh, or anything like that when it's just a logo and it's a uh, was you know a group of people that would fund certain film productions and they you know were giving Santiago Stelly some money to make these things and we made them together and and that was uh, that was how it all started whether I, I like I, I don't like talking about vice because it's not a person it's not it's just a logo whereas Santiago mm-hmm. was a, a person who actually God, yeah. um, was involved with me and and David Feinberg would be another person an editor a really brilliant editor who is very involved in all of the seasons of Hamilton's pharmacopoeia. so these were you know I worked with a team of people who received, Uh, payment through Vice to make this production, but especially toward the end, um, the idea was to keep it as separate as possible from any kind of conventions within the media organization, because I felt that they had become primarily a source of interference with what I was trying to do, both legally and creatively.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, Were you, are you considered like the director of Hamilton's Pharmacopeia or are you like the host and someone else is kind of saying like, it'd be great if we did this, this, and this, you know, I was curious, like if you are also the director of, of all of these shows or, um, you know, is it it a collaboration with, with other people? It's it's always a
1: collaboration. Um, and this is, this is why, um, this is why it even like regardless of who is credited as director, like it's, it's never just one person, uh, the contributions of, of people in every, when it came to the taste of the, show and the subject matter is obviously as i said previously vice is not a real thing and if it were a real thing it would never in a trillion years have any interest in any of the things that i'm interested in so people would say like yeah. that was the best vice mm-hmm. show and it's like what is that even the best vice show it was like every show is it created by people uh, um so so right. like uh, like, you know, if, if you're trying to compare it to other things, there would be no comparison other than the individual people that made these different shows um, and what yeah. their taste is. So most people are not actually very interested in this subject. And accordingly, the coverage is extremely bad. Um, because if you just take somebody who doesn't know anything about chemistry or psychedelics and ask them to, and, and, and they pitch, I mean, what it, it typically happens to you have freelance type people um which i often was as well this is not a, a knock against freelance people um, but they're just looking for stories right and it could be uh gee whiz these ketamine telemedicine companies are a thing is it good is it bad let's find out right and they they don't really know anything about what they're they're doing and they just call up some people and they do some interviews and it's typically superficial and kind of bad and often even somewhat destructive in, in its uh, interpretation of reality. But that's the way most journalism is conducted. And so, um, so I just happened to be extremely interested in this subject matter. And the resultant coverage was extremely in depth because I care about the chemistry and wanted to film those aspects of it. So no one was asking me to do that, of course, um, that this was my own mm-hmm. desire, uh, mm-hmm. to, to do this sort of thing, but it wouldn't have been possible without, um, without the brilliant contributions of many people like Danilo Lopara, Justin Clark, Mimi Packer, David Feinberg and, and many, many others. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Are, are you also the editor or do you have like kind of a guy editing and he passes it by you and you say, that'd be cool if it was more like this. Are you pretty hands on with the editing?
1: Um, I, well, it kind of depends on how you define edit, like the editing in terms of the actual editing was done by professional editors. Um, but I would sit with them as it was being edited and would mm-hmm. provide continuous feedback about the structure of things. I mean, a lot of the editing was extremely mm-hmm. technical, especially for the, the chemistry sequences. And so that required um, a huge amount of work with editors in conjunction with myself. And then there was uh, also a, a chemist uh, named David Brook who tragically died in an explosion. But he was really uh, very, very helpful. And I considered many of the chemistry sequences in the show were sort of collaborations between me and, and David Brooke. Um, and we would, you know, go back and forth writing the mechanistic voiceover and I would draw all the diagrams and then we'd time them. And yeah, it was, you know, it's a collaboration of a lot of different people. They were very complicated things to assemble. It's not something that any single person could have done.
0: hmm Gotcha. Yeah. Um last couple questions here. Um was there a favorite episode that you had where it's like it sticks out in your mind as like wow that one is like my masterpiece, you know, or if not an episode a season. Um
1: you know there are episodes that I liked for different reasons. I liked the MDMA episode with Steve Gill because I felt that Steve Gill is really kind of a a beautiful person who is the type of person who doesn't really get credit um, in our current medicalized conceptualization of psychedelic history, somebody who really allowed Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of people to have MDMA experiences and paid for it with his freedom and otherwise would never have gotten... Even the, the smallest amount of public recognition for the sacrifices and the work that he did. So I feel you know that there's something really nice about being able to do that because it, more than one thing that I've been struck by is that you know people are very interested in drugs. People will constantly cover this area whether or not I'm around. But there are certain things that I feel nobody else will cover. And if I don't do it, Mm -hmm. nobody ever will. And for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. certain attitudes are not widely held by people. So this sort of appreciation of clandestine chemists and the beauty of the science that is responsible for what they create is not something that is widely held. This is not something that I... Encounter other journalists who are passionate about communicating this. And so, you know, whereas an appreciation for the beauty of indigenous traditions, that is pretty widely held, right? So, you know, I, I happen to really like the Iboga mm-hmm. piece that I made. I think it's interesting structurally, but I'm not the the first or the last person to go to a a Boga ceremony and notice that it's beautiful, right? There's, there's going to be plenty of Mm -hmm. people that are capable of filming that and, and communicating the, the beauty of that tradition to audiences outside of Gabon. Um, So I guess like the things that I am most pleased with are the things that I felt that if I didn't do them, nobody else would have and something like the Steve Gill episode Or the Daryl Lemaire, Lazy Lizard School of Hedonism episode fall into that category where they they required a certain type of investigation and and depth and appreciation of the chemistry that um, otherwise would not, the, the stories probably just would have been forgotten or never would have been told. Um, I mean, even with the boga episode, okay. it wasn't just about Buiti. Iboga rituals. It was about the natural synthetic dichotomy and this uh, bizarre controversy surrounding the supposed natural origin of tramadol, which even in terms of scientific appraisal of that issue remains like completely insane. Like people still seem to think that it was uh, a result of cattle urine contamination of the environment. So, you know, like even that is an example of something that no one else had covered. So I guess the, for me, like one of the major, things that I would try to think about is like how, what are things that I want to do that only I could, could do or would do. And if I don't do them, nobody else ever will. And so that's the best use of my time.
0: Storytelling wise. Love that. Well, yeah absolutely and dude i just want to say thank you for what you have done it's provided so much insight uh for myself and i'm sure so many others into these stories that you know uh, us in the psychedelic community really need to hear and learn the history about it so definitely appreciate what you're doing man um last question is there going to be any more seasons of hamilton's pharmacopia certainly not i mean not I I don't even know
1: if Vice exists anymore. I have no idea. I I would, you know, I I will make things. I continue, I have a podcast. I'll continue to make various things. I'll write. I'm working on articles. I'm doing scientific work. I um, am working on a film project. Mm -hmm. So so no, I'm not going to make another season of Hamilton's Pharmacopia. Absolutely not. I don't think I could if I wanted to, but I'm absolutely not going to regardless but I'll make other things that will be just as good if not better so I don't think that that needs to be a uh that
0: needs to be like a an issue for anyone like a big letdown yeah for yeah. sure well dude thank you so much today it's been an honor speaking with you brother and uh yeah, yeah look yeah, forward to future collaborations absolutely man um I guess uh we could point people to your patreon that's where You know, all of your cool stuff goes down, right? Uh, How do we get to your Patreon?
1: Yeah, patreon.com slash Hamilton Morris for five bucks. You can listen to several hundred hours of interviews with scientists and read thousands of scientific publications. And it's a, a really good way for me to release unedited or minimally edited, in depth technical discussions of chemistry and pharmacology without the middleman of an editor or a publisher or some kind of media outlet that it allows a sort of very pure um, interaction with the subject matter, which I like. It's, it's been fun for me. So yeah, patreon.com slash
0: Hamilton Morris. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us. Um, we'll see you on the next episode. And thank you once again, Hamilton, for being here today. Of course. Thank you. Yeah.